0: hello and welcome to one of our first episodes of the redraft podcast I am one of your co-hosts Will Stevenson, I am the author of We Are Now Approaching, a poetry collection out now with Benke Publishing and I am one half of Switchblade Society, a monthly open mic night in Manchester City Centre and I am joined for one of our inaugural episodes by my co-host
1: Hello, I'm Romina Ramos, author of Sardines, a chapbook out now with Benke Publishing as well that deals with uh, dislocation, belonging, identity, things like that. I'm also one half of Natta Bolton, Bolton's open mic night, monthly open mic night. I run that with Stuart Beveridge. And I'm one half of Printer Poet with my partner Nat, where we create lots of arty things. And as of this week, I'm also one quarter of the CIC, mm. The Door Is Open.
0: Incredible. We, You can find out more about our joint project, uh, The Door Is Open, over on Instagram. But in brief we have started a community interest company all about developing the arts in the town in which we live. So, Mina, really excited to to chat today. Um, we're going to be demoing the format a little bit, getting to know each other, um, so everyone can see just what kind of conversation we're going to have with some of our upcoming guests, which include the brilliant Brogan Ties at Carlin, um, BBC Six Music's own Anthony Schmerich, and... where do you even start with with henry normal an absolute uh polymath
1: i think yeah absolutely absolutely very exciting very exciting guests very insightful interviews are coming your way and what better way to start that than getting to know your hosts will and myself in the first couple of episodes so i'm very excited to kick things off
0: Incredible. So we 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 uh, we won't sit and chat for too much longer. Apart from to tell you that this morning I am uh, a bit bruised and a bit battered because I broke out of my mosh pit retirement last night for our friend Reese's the Fragile Poets band Fane, uh, <laughs> which was fantastic. <laughs> they did a brilliant gig at Rebellion in Manchester in Deansgate. Um, but yeah, if you sort of see me massaging my neck at any point on this Zoom call, head banging uh, overload last night. I think.
1: Yeah, the gig looked really good. Uh, Michaela took some f- class photographs uh, of the of the event. Yeah, it looked it looked amazing. So
0: um, let's let's get into it. Are you excited for the interview?
1: I'm very excited for the interview. I love chatting to you. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes.
0: Incredible. Let's get on with it. Drop the music. <laughs> Romina. I am so excited for this conversation. Um, we're going to chat in something of chronological order, I think. Mm. Um, talking about sardines, which I've been rereading over the past couple of days. Talking oh. about um, Nata. Talking about the kick. I think we can give people a little bit more information about the kick later on towards the end of the interview. And uh, yeah, heritage, upbringing, all that good stuff. So let's get into it. Rina. Let's go. Um, when you were first... Um, exposed to poetry, when when was that? When were you first exposed to poetry?
1: Um, I o- I've always written poetry, but I wasn't aware that I, that's what I was writing at the time. But the first time that I was like, oh, this is poetry was um, maybe about six or seven years ago when my mom was at Bolton Uni doing her BA degree. Uh, she'd mentioned it to me a few times because she knew I was, she always knew deep down I was a writer. Um, and then I just remember going on YouTube one time and, and typing in poetry, and I came across Button Poetry. Don't know if you're aware, Button Poetry is a, a YouTube channel. Well, they're they're publishers, really, um, based out in America, and they've got a YouTube channel where they put out all their like published poets' work and stuff, and that's the first time I, I listened to something, and I was like, oh, this can be poetry. So I would say about six or seven years ago.
0: Yeah, I... Uh... I had a similar experience with button poetry. I would I think I was exposed to them via like a Facebook. Yeah. I mean this is way like back a in the day. I dad. Think before Instagram was even a thing. I wasn't really on Twitter. Facebook was like the main one. And I saw um OCD by um Neil Hillhorn and yeah, his performance of that piece really blew me away. What was the Can you remember the first piece that you saw from Button?
1: Yeah, the first piece that I saw was um it was Rudy Francisco mm. um and I think it was something really it wasn't even one of his like deep poems it was called- mm. I'm sure it was called to the girl that works at the sh- at the Starbucks across the street from where I live, something along those lines i might I Amazing. might have missed a little bit but it was just that sense of, oh, God, like, a, a, minute, a minute moment in your day can really yeah. be a poem. Like, you walking past this coffee shop every day quite fancying the girl that walks behind the counter and not musting up the courage to say hello to her. Like, all these little things can be, poetry can be a poem if you, if you know how to do, use the craft, right? Um, yeah. And I think that was the moment I was like, oh, my God, this is poetry. Shit, what I've been writing is poetry, you know what I mean? Do you
0: know what's really funny? So like I said, I've been rereading Sardines. And now you say, I don't know if you've noticed this link, but the first line in the first poem in this, in this chat book is in line at Sue's, which is about a very, very similar kind of experience, although a less positive one. So your first line is, and the bold guy in the middle makes a wisecrack about my queuing. So it's that same idea of taking this sort of macro experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, that was a really big moment because it was Mm. the first time in years that I've had someone like very, very clearly be like, oh, you're a foreigner. You don't belong here kind of thing. Because Mm. for for many years, like I, I got that a lot growing up here in England as a Portuguese migrant. But there was a few years there f- after my teenage years where I just passed for English. Like, people mm. just thought, if you see me in the street, if you heard my accent, I could just be any old Boltonian that was on the street. But that moment brought back the thing that, oh, that might go dormant for, like, a while, but there is always someone there who will point that out. Um, so, to me, it was a big moment, but also, to the passive eye, it could just be, oh, she's in the chippy waiting for her chips. Like, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, it yeah. could be conceived as very small but perceived as very small but yeah
0: that's really interesting do you think i mean the poem is written post brexit because you referred to the referendum in it do you think there is a tie between those two things
1: oh absolutely i noticed mm. a massive spike uh, i mean you can't not notice if you read the news and everything else but i d- mm. s- post brexit i know i noticed a massive spike in racial slurs and 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 you know xenophobia and racism Mm. like spiking up um there was a few instances that went viral in in manchester trams where people were like told Mm. to get off and all sorts of things um so i definitely think the two things relate to each other 100 percent.
0: it's really interesting to hear from the perspective of someone who like you say is is british passing um on some occasions and, and when that Feels like it's relevant to your writing, I guess. Like, do you feel like your work is Portuguese in its style? Do you read much in 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 Portuguese at all?
1: Uh, the only poet I've read like a lot of um, was Fernando Pessoa, who's I did a couple of essays on him at work mm. at, at uni. Um, and that he was a, a Portuguese poet back in eighteen eighty eight. It was po- it was before Walt Whitman. No, it was after Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. But it was it was early early on. And um, he's just he's a fascinating guy. He wrote in multiple multiple personas. He had all these um, heteronyms, uh, and he wrote. In all of them, very differently. They all had their own. All, all had their own literary style. They all had different ways of writing, different forms they used. It, it's just insane. The guy had multiple people inside of him, and he he mm. wrote as them all. Like and I, it's just it is very interesting. Uh, but he's the only one. I don't think my I don't think my style is directly influenced by Portuguese tradition or anything like that. Um, however, I feel like it's influenced by. The place, the people, mm. the language, mm. you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Did you feel, when writing Sardines, and we'll circle back around to like earlier stuff later, but did you feel the, um, the, the, the need to self-censor any direct references? Because there's lots of sprinkles of Portuguese language in there, which might have been... Alienate into a reader that wasn't aware of the references. We've talked before about things being universal but also specific, and I think that Sardines does manage to do that. But did that play on your mind? Yeah, while um,
1: you it? yeah, that was definitely a discussion that I had with my um, creative project supervisor, Ben Wilkinson, who we'll have on the show later on. Um, mm. That was definitely a yeah, conversation that was had, but I feel like I did it just enough. Like you say, sprinkled in. Well, hopefully, it wasn't too alienating. And really, like Ben mentioned to me, when I had that worry, Ben was very quick to say, "We're in the time now that whoever's going to be reading this point these poems, or this book, mm. is likely going to have a phone sat next to them where they can Google what pastel nata means or when. Yeah. What, you know, like. Um. So I tried to bit make sure that if if I was using the words, it was like just like one per poem, and it wasn't like too oh god I don't I, th- I feel like even if you don't know what the words in you can have a very wise guess at what it might yeah. mean because it's one word in a full sentence and you can kind of get the context yeah, contextualize and think, yeah. It,
0: absolutely yeah I yeah. mean often they're referring to either place or to like food yeah or music or, yeah. Or, yeah yeah so you gather from the context okay that's what it is and maybe you can store it away and look it up afterwards yeah. yeah brilliant so we. i remember sorry t- just on that really sorry. quick i remember
1: i was inspired to do that because i read the book i know the guy when i read the book i wasn't aware of who he was i only researched him after it but i read a book called this is how you lose her by mm. junior diaz and he is a, a south american writer but he's a little bit sexist a little bit misogynistic so we don't really like him but th- that <laughs> book is excellent um if you can separate the art from the artist, I think that book's really good and it's short stories. But it does that really well, where it will sprinkle like a Spanish word in the middle of the page. And maybe I know what it is because I speak Portuguese. But again, I think it does it so well that you don't need to know what it means. You can carry on reading it and you, you'll mm. contextualize it and get, get the point.
0: And actually, people do that across fiction don't they like if you look at historical fiction there's going to be references to things that you don't understand if you look at crime fiction there's going to be references to things that you don't understand but you can piece it together based again yeah on the context rather than needing to know the specifics i suppose yeah definitely there's an interesting study that i can't i can't remember the the actual facts of so i'm not going to be i'm not going to press on it but there's a certain amount of percentage of text that you need to understand in order to be a fluent reader and it's not it's not 100 it's not even 90 i'm sure it's something like 80 percent. if you can understand 80 percent of the words on the page you can piece together the meaning and you can continue progressing through the book that reflects a lot of the time the way that i read as well and when i'm reading sort of very literate things i will take it quite slowly um because I feel like I end up rereading passages to, to sort of drag out every bit of meaning from them. What are you like as a reader?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I have my stages, really. You know, when I, before I started uni in 2017, 2016, maybe, um, I, I hadn't read a book for many years. I was going mm. through bits of, Uh, Of life, um, and I just had no time. I was a (laughs) chef as well, so God, there's gonna be a siren. Um, But yeah, no. Once I started uni, the first book they gave us to read was The Odyssey, which obviously is very intimidating (laughs) for someone who's not read for a while. The first book
0: that you were assigned.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It was this module called Narrating the World, and it was all about, you know, how how there is one story one template story and every story yeah, then yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. the same story blah 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 um and it's just retold in different ways and s- things like this um but luckily for me i i like i love greek myth i fell in love with greek myth i've always been quite interested mm-hmm. about it but reading the odyssey and delving into the different myths and all this i really love that um and then obviously shortly after that we went into the COVID times where we were just mm-hmm. at home we had no time and i devoured like in that first lockdown I devoured like 40 books it was just Mm. George Floyd has just been killed all these things are going on and I just got all the books on Black Lives Matter I could possibly buy and got them all to my Mm. house and read them all educated myself all these things um but now after uni I went into kind of a slump so poetry books collections I can read um I can read quick get through them but I'm I'm I've been in a weird like year-long fiction um, kind of like slump, so um, yeah. I've picked up a book that I borrowed from uh, Michaela, which I can't remember the name of right now, but it's by Natasha Brown, which I'm reading at the moment, really enjoying yeah. it. And I'm moving through that a, a better pace than I, I, I have been doing recently. But as you say, when you come to like more academic or literary texts, it takes me quite a while to, I've got a really, really bad concentration span, really bad. If like I get bored within the second line, Ne- not necessarily bored, but if I'm having trouble understanding, or yeah, you know, it can kind of intimidate me a bit and and, and so pull me back a little bit.
0: The book that you're referring to is Assembly by That's Natasha it, Brown, yeah. I think. Yeah, and it, it that is it has a very similar um, sort of almost colloquial style as. So my favourite writer is um, Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. Because I- each. Of his works is like really, it creates a world really effectively, but it doesn't, it doesn't, I think it almost reads quite poetically in that it doesn't waste time. Every word seems vital and not, it it doesn't, it doesn't spend time sort of world building for the sake of it. You feel like there's, you, you are rooted in the story, and he drops in this looping back around to the Portuguese thing, he dro- he drops in like his sort of world stuff and you just have to go with it and roll with it. it it's written often in a really colloquial sense, but using sort of words that aren't our colloquialisms. Um, uh, like in Clara and the Sun, they just automatically are like, this is 10 things that we're not going to explain what they are. You just have to get on with them. And I just, yeah, I think it's really, really readable without being too highbrow for the sake of being highbrow, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I've, I've only read one of his books and that's Never Let Me Go. We read a passage mm. of it at uni and watched like a little clip of the film. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I was immediately interested in that. Um, so I've got Never Let It Go and I read it. And I think you're absolutely bang on with the money there. He just builds that world. So seemingly like, like, Easy, easily you would s- mm. you'd think mm. but it probably isn't it probably takes him a lot of time but it's uh like you said there's no fluffing up there's no flowery sh- shit in there just for the sake of it it's to the point and it's it does it really well and i really i, I mm. really enjoyed that that book to be fair
0: yeah good i think it's um i think you could tell a lot about a person from the way in which they read not necessarily from the text that they read but from way in which they read and I think I also did that thing of I was really into non-fiction for a long time and it was pre-pandemic I, wa- I just wasn't reading fiction at all I was just reading stuff that was making me quite sad <laughs> like Utopia for Realists by Rutger Brang- Bregman was pretty much the only positive text I was reading everything else was basically just going yeah the world is in a really terrible place <laughs> and <laughs> we're surrounded by terrible humans and it was reading, have you read that, Utopia for Realists?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: It's great because it's, it takes all of the problems that we sort of face and it recontextualizes them in sort of achievable steps that makes it feel like, oh, okay, there, there might be a way out of this. We can We can do X, Y, and Z. And I think that's what fiction does too, and poetry a lot of the time, is that it takes small problems and makes them doable.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Fiction for me was always, especially especially during COVID times. But mm. as a rule, anyway, it's always kind of been an es- escap escapism. Um, mm. Like I remember reading Harry Potter, which you know mm. it isn't great to <laughs> admit right now. But anyway, um, again, listen, if listen, we can,
0: a million billion people did. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and exactly. And we can separate
1: perhaps. we can separate the art from the artist again for yeah. a quick minute there. Because those books saved my childhood. Like I remember mm. reading them books. I read the first three books in Portuguese before we moved mm. here. Um, and it was just such an escape. Like it, mm-hmm. I, You were lost in a different world. Um, and maybe, I didn't know this at the time, but maybe thinking about it in hindsight, she wrote a lot of the early stuff in Portugal, in Porto. So she was influenced by... Um, oh wow I didn't yeah, know that yeah okay. she was in fo- so Salazar Slytherin uh, is named after Salazar which was a di- dictator in Portugal he <laughs> was an awful awful man um, so there's there's lots of little like sp- Portuguese like um, inspirations I would flavorings, say maybe sp- yeah, flavoring, yeah. sprinkled throughout and maybe what, that's why I connected with those books so much but yeah from, from then those were the k- first kind of books that I read myself um mm it always has been an escapism and definitely during COVID when we were at home and we literally couldn't leave. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and like I said, mentioned earlier, I, f- I burnt through 40 books because it was literally a way of being anywhere else but my mum's back garden, you know what I mean? Mm, mm. <laughs> um, did you, so, yeah.
0: was Harry Potter a route through to, did you get into like teen, young adult teen fiction?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. What After else? Harry what Potter, but it, it, they were, I've got a lot, I still have a lot in a box, but they're, they're all Portuguese. Because for a while, even when I moved here for a while, I would only be gifted Portuguese books so that I would keep reading and I'll keep Mm. writing and understanding. Um, So yeah, there was this book where, um, it was uh, Joanna's Moon, that would be the translation where uh, it's about two teenage friends, uh, one of them dies. um, Then, uh, yeah, just like adventure books and things like that, yeah. I read loads of YA mm.
0: stuff like that. I think YA stuff is is probably underrated in its its importance because we had the sort of deluge of stuff in like the mid twenty tens where everything had like a big, a big screen adaptation, and most of them weren't very good. Um, yeah. But they, what they do do is they get people interested in in continuing to develop their love of, yeah, like you say, escapism and being in a different place. And it's important not to sort of underrate that as as, as a thing, I think. Particularly, we've talked before about, like, poetry and gatekeeping and when work becomes legitimate. And I think writing a really, really impactful children's book is really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, 100%. And I think more people, like, the last time I was in Waterstones, and I I, I went past the... Uh, YA section, it was like, Zadie Smith was in there, and mm. you know what I mean? And uh, Colleen Hoover, who does all the crime books, like my, nee- my my cousin, Sophia, who's only like year 10, she's reading all the Colleen Hoover books, and it's like, mm. <laughs> you know, um, so I think more people are actu- actually trying to branch out and do some YA that uh, previously haven't been like categorized that way, but yeah, absolutely. If you can engage the mind of a teenager, Throughout 220 pages, I think you're mm. doing stellar work, you know, like,
0: f- for sure. Mm. Particularly with the ADHD sort of culture that we yeah. we are well in the midst of at the moment. Yeah, good. Right. Let's circle back round to before all of this yep. and to your story of arriving um, in England and school for you. Um, which you touch on briefly in Sardines at certain points, lines about play skirts and fitting in. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about school. Tell me about um, Bolton. Um,
1: Bolton, <laughs> Bolton is very different to where I grew oh. up. Um, you know, where I grew up, our fish came straight from the dock. That's a line from the book. Um, but yeah, no, it's very different. I the the the, the main thing that stuck. T- with me, after all these years, was moving here on the 31st of July, mm. um, and I come from a place where, from May till October, you can go to the beach. You know, mm. um, and and I did go to the beach because my granddad uh, was a cake se- was a baker and a cake seller uh, on the beach, uh, and we would go six o'clock in the morning, we'd set up camp. To keep the like, so we had enough shade to keep everything fresh, and then he would go off and pace the beach for hours and hours and hours till about seven eight o'clock at night. So we would be there all this time, um, from all for all these months, and then so thirty first of July was like the peak, <laughs> <laughs> mm. the peak of the summer. You know, mm. it was like whenever all the tourists would come down, it was get really busy, and that's when I moved to England. And when I got out at Manchester Airport, it was raining torrentially. Um, mm. Then I got into a black cab, which I'd never seen before. I came to Bolton to Great Lever, which, if you know Bolton, you know, you it's a highly deprived area, just c- concrete council estates, that kind mm. of thing. And when we got out of the black cab in this concrete estate, all the houses looked the same, and there was an ice cream van going around, and I think, <laughs> where where have they bought me? Like, I'd never seen an ice cream van before. Um, and, yeah, it was all these things that were just, like, just it was just, like, a lot of differences and... Um but at the same time, you know, Bolton opened its arms to me uh and and has taken us in twenty years it's gonna be twenty two year no, twenty one years this year that mm. we've been here, and it's been a ride. it's been good and bad, it's been ups and downs, but I feel like at this point, I'm just adapted to it. you know it's my mm. home it's been my home for twenty one years and uh yeah, it's it's been it's been an experience. You think that Portugal's only there, and it's like a, it, and it's like Europe, you know, we're all Europeans mm, and mm, mm. and and whatever. But it, the culture shock was incredible. Like, yeah, it was it was it was tough to begin with. But yeah, I'm I'm here and I'm adapted and I, I call Bolton my home now. And we started the CIC to give back to the community and improve it. And yeah,
0: mm. I think often if you go on like a Bolton News Facebook post in the comments, you'll go you, and you'll see about migration or whatever. And you'll see a lot of people actually putting down the place where they live and saying, oh, why would you move here? Why would you, call, like you say, to grey and dull? And <laughs> but it's, it's not all it is, to be fair. But that's people who've lived it their whole lives. Do you know the thought process about why Why Bolton? Yeah,
1: um, I know I know my experience, but just to touch on what you just said now, I, ev- mm. I get that question every single time someone mm. new finds out I'm Portuguese, every mm. time. I had mm. a couple came in the other day to the cafe, never been before, visiting their daughter at Bolton Uni. They live in Portugal, and um, they didn't know we were Portuguese, so then when I heard them speak Portuguese amongst themselves, I spoke back to them, Portuguese, da, 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 and they were like, oh, you know, and then there was like, what how, how have you ended up here like <laughs> <laughs> every single person even portuguese people but yeah Bolton people all the time it's the first thing you go oh where are you from portugal oh my god why did you come here how did you end up here i
0: think i guess because it's like a holiday destination yeah people think of portugal
1: Britain. they think beach they think yeah. holiday you know yeah um what was the question the question was um, it was a
0: generic question it was why
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, why, why? And um, well,
0: obviously it was out of your hands as a child. Yeah, at the time, for
1: but. me it was out of my hands. I was only 11 years old. Um, but my story is that my auntie, Sandra, who lives here, who's my mom's sister, um, she was working in Portugal in a factory that made like porcelain ornaments. <laughs> um, and she one day was just like, yep, yeah, from tomorrow the factory's closed. And she's like, right, no job. Wow. Um, Employment was was big in Portugal at the time. She couldn't really find anything. She tried for like a few months, Mm. uh, couldn't find anything. And then she found um, a factory that produces Portuguese salads in Dover uh, (laughs) called Vitacres. And... They were like, yeah, you can do like a year's contract. Like they'll give you a year's contract. You've got, you get accommodation and you just go and work on the factory lines. So she was Mm. like, I've no other option. And she came and there she met a group of Portuguese people who Mm. after their contract ended, all got a house in Bolton, like a massive house. One of them houses you see that's got like 10 bedrooms or whatever. Mm. Um, Mm. And they were like to my auntie, you know, come with us. So she did, but then she brought my mum with her. She rang my mum and said, "You need to come." You know, my mum. We was extremely poor in Portugal. Um, we lived with my grandparents, uh, who were always having to like sort of pull my mum out of like debt and things. And um, and again, my mum was a, mo- a single mum for three. You know, really unlucky mm. in love, and and needed all the help. And then she saw this opportunity, and she just grabbed it. She mm. saw my my auntie told her sort of how much money she was making here, which compared to Portugal is like substantial amount more. um, Mm. And it's just a better quality of life. And she looked at us three kids and she thought, I've got to at least try it. And she's never looked back. (laughs) But that's how we've ended up in in Bolton, yeah. So my mum came four months before us. And just to say, my mum is a hero because she just had Lucas. Lucas was six months old when she had to leave him, Mm. leave him one morning and never look back and not know what's what's going to be waiting for her not knowing if it's going to work out um and I just I don't know how she did that because I I have no kids obviously um but I feel like that's a really six months old is like that bonding time and that Mm. I feel like that's if you make that decision you must be pretty desperate I would say and like you know but she did it for us and and we've had an amazing life because of it
0: It's really funny, isn't it? That idea of people not being able to empathize, and like you say, in in the poems about, you know, this discrimination, etc., being faced by by people over the years. But British people do this all the time, you know, in their retirement, in their older age, or to go and work in, in a different industry in a different place. And yet it's never the same thing when you're leaving England. It's never, because I guess the, the, the base route is probably a different point. A lot of the people that are migrants away from England are starting off with a decent chunk of savings already and going to get a holiday home or going to move to America for more opportunities. And because they're starting off not at the bottom of the sort of economic ladder, that's sort of seen as fine. Yeah, I around. think
1: yeah, I completely agree. I think a lot of people are of the mentality when it's the other way around. Like my experience and and even worse, you know, I've, I, 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 we fled poverty. You know, it's mm. it's it's definitely a massive issue and it's definitely, but there are people far worse fleeing war, mm. fleeing you know bombs, f- fleeing death. So I know that I'm lucky in that sense, but I feel like when it's kind of my experience and even worse, people that have that. Opinion, like oh, they're coming, taking our opportunities. They're coming, taking mm. our money. They're t- coming, but let me tell you right now, my mum. When we came here, in fact, I can say m- m- my mum has never claimed benefits. My mum has always worked. I've never mm. signed on. I've always worked since being seventeen. We've always contributed to the economy. We've o- we've always paid taxes. We've always mm. like had full, proper jobs on the books, that kind of thing. Like the only thing, my mum has ever claimed is like child benefit when we was at school and mm. you just get that per child anyway. But she always mm. worked, you know, it was 20 quid a week. It was, we've not took anyone's money and a lot of people don't. A lot of people come here to escape things like mm. poverty, things like, you know, domestic situations and things like that. Um, and they've co- they come here for a better life, yeah, but they're also making the place better. You know what I mean? If t- mm. I, I've mm. always said this, like I've been told, or uh, you know, while I was growing up, like a lot of like, genuinely, a lot of my friends' parents and stuff were racist, were xenophobic, mm. maybe not meaning, not like, oh, you know, people people of color of this or people of color of that, but I got so many times, which again is one of the lines in the book, not you though, you're okay. Like I got told that so many times because they would say things like, oh, all this foreign is this, all this foreigners is that. Not you though, you're all um, right, you know, you come for tea, you're fine, you know, you're my I guess friend.
0: It's it's partially as well. It's because you do have that that sort of British passing element to it, and it's genuinely people checking themselves after they've said what they've said, realizing it's disgusting. Yeah, exactly. Oh shit! (laughs) There's one of them here. But I always (laughs) have this
1: response, right? And I don't know. Some people might disagree, but I'm I've always had this response, and it's this: if you remove all the all the foreigners in this country. Yeah, Mm. who were doing all the little jobs that no one wants to do, among all the many other jobs, you know, there's there's foreign people in CEO positions and all these things, I'm not denying that, but if you removed all the foreign people in this country, like, I'm not saying it would stop moving, but it would struggle. Like, there's a lot of people doing the jobs in the underbelly that no one wants to do, being cleaners, Mm. doing this, doing that, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's a funny it's a funny one, isn't it? I don't want to get too no. political, but it's, uh, yeah.
0: It goes back a very long time. It goes back to, like, Windrush and post-World War II and after all these soldiers from across the world, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims from all over the world, you know, black people come to fight for the empire, the motherland, and then sort of get rejected by it. Afterwards, and pushed aside, and obviously, eventually, documents burned and thrown in the ocean, and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's yep. um. I Don't know how we got into that, but I know nice. I don't know. But
1: yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. What I um, what I meant to sort of ask you about is 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 I guess your first experiences of school and of English literature, both the subjects and just reading in English, which I imagine is a completely different experience. Yeah, to reading in a mother tongue.
1: Absolutely. Um. So school, right. I moved here in July. They were on uh, summer school holidays, of course. Mm, But mm. my school offered a summer school um, thing, program, um, which was just a week long. But it allowed you to go into school uh, to meet a couple of your peers, to meet some teachers. Um, I absolutely hated that. Only because (laughs) I... I, I, Yeah, very honestly, I, I absolutely hated that. Because it was at the very... Crucial beginning point. I didn't know anyone. I did not speak the language. It was raining all the time. It was summertime. I was confused. Mm. Um, And I just got bullied playing out. I got Mm. bullied. We were taken into like the library, put in a circle, got to read like Shakespeare. And I've never read bloody English in my <laughs> life you know so it was really really tough <laughs> is this um, what this
0: language looks like <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. it was really really tough and and the kids were just obviously laughing but kids are evil mm. and but they don't mean to be they're just ignorant aren't they they don't understand mm. that something different to them especially they just don't understand that and mm. when someone doesn't understand something they tend to kind of reject it and uh, mm. and I found that was my experience in that summer school hated it didn't really want to go into school when it first started in September but I did Um and then, luckily, the school were very good in the sense of, when everyone else went to English, I had a one-to-one with a with this lady. Mm. Um, I can't remember her name now, it's been bloody many years, but, um, or oh, Mrs. Young, I think, anyway. Uh, yeah, we had a one-to-one when everyone else went to English. I did that for like three months. Um, and then I was chucked into English then. But it was fine, because I picked it up that easy, like, in school, I'd I'd only done one year of learning English, but it was very Americanized. It was, you know, how are you? What is your name? When is your <laughs> birthday? Those kind of things. And I remember sitting in geography once, and the teacher was like, "Page 14," and I was like, "At page 40," and I couldn't find mm-hmm. it. And I was like, I was like, there was no t in that in that in that word. What did he say? Like, uh, so the accent took me a while. But again, I was lucky in the sense that a little group of girls who were like, as peop- I suppose people and my f- later friends did call them like swats, but they really saved me because they took me under the wing, they taught me like the colloquialisms and the slang, mm. and and you know, within being here six months, I was speaking with an accent, but I was speaking the language fluently. I had the vocabulary, mm. I knew what the words meant, I was still obviously had an accent because that doesn't go away as easy as that, um, and it still slips out every now and then, but, yeah, um, that, that, but when I started going to English, I was so desperate to dominate the language that I, I don't think the content, I actually took that much, um, mm-hmm. paid that much attention or took that much notice of it. Um, what I really remember is doing Romeo and Juliet and then doing the um, AQA, AQA anthology, which I'm sure you mm-hmm. as a teacher, teach that or know of it very well mm. um and again even then i only really remember because we spent weeks and weeks and weeks on it is the poem afcast which i know is not um politically correct to say but that's the title of the poem um and yeah that's 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 like the real first introduction to like poetry and shakespeare and all kind of all that kind of thing that i had
0: yeah that piece by john Eagard, is. Um, it's 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 something that stuck out to me from when I cuz obviously I've got into t- started teaching english like a few years ago and it's one of the ones that a is still the same since you've done it since I've done it which is crazy but also did stick out to me when I was young despite sharing no experiences with this this guy john um because it uses um in in the language and it it, it doesn't it's not really structured um in a very tight scripted way, like a lot of the other stuff I mean loads of that anthology is like romantic poets um like the prelude is on there, which is still crazy to me, and it's an extract from it but if you're putting that in front of like fifteen sixteen year olds and asking them to to find an interest and enjoyment in in poetry, I just wouldn't show them the prelude personally <laughs> or You know, there's all sorts on that anthology, but the the Agard one sticks out as something more contemporary, a bit punkish, a bit more angry. And it's one of the things that first, yeah, I mean, we'll get onto this in my episode, but but did first attract me to poetry. Was there anything on that that stuck out to you at all? Or did it fly over your head because you were, like you say, learning via osmosis at the time?
1: Yeah, I think uh looking back I probably didn't think this at the time but looking back I think that uh, poem has stuck with me because it was probably the closest thing on there to my experience. I know it's not my experience, yeah. you know, I yeah. know I'm a white person and everything else, but it's you can find I believe this in, in pretty much any poetry or any writing you, you if you want to relate it to your life badly enough you you can. Um mm. and I think that yeah. is uh that is probably clo- d- the only thing on that anthology that is was uh, uh, relatable to me at the time, uh, however minute that might be. But again, you know, the experience of not being from here and, and all that sort of thing. But I, I, at yes. the time, I, d- I don't think I thought that at the time, but I think mm. if I, if it's the only poem that right now I can say, I know I did that poem, and, mm. I, and I remember that from the anthology, I think that might be why.
0: There's a reason why that's, that's stuck there. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So, Moving on from English at high school, what what came next for you? College, sixth form?
1: Yeah, um, I really struggled at high school. It wasn't a good time for me. Um, I went off the rails massively. I got into drugs a lot. I didn't get the best grades. I mean, mm. I still got a B in English, which was very... Much celebrated by the head of English at the time. I got to see in IT and business as well, um, and, I, and they let me take <laughs> they let me take a GCSE in the Portuguese language, <laughs> which I only got an A in, and I was a bit teased about that afterwards. Uh, not but, an A star, uh, not I mean. an A star. <laughs> but in my offe- in my defence, I was not sober when I took that, so <laughs> that's that. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I wasn't a very good. I wasn't. I was in a very bad place there. I think he was the accumulation of being taken away from everything and everyone that I knew brought here. And then I spent a lot of time, foolishly, but just trying desperately to belong. So I went from school group, mm. from friend group to friend group in school, trying to see where I fit in, trying to change myself and adapt myself to fit in in certain places. And I ended up losing myself, Our school was awful. I got bullied a lot, first for being foreign, then for being gay, um, so. Yeah, I hated school. When I left school, um, I was kicked out. I was only allowed to come back and do my GCSEs to take the exams. So mm. that was that. And then I was a bit lost. I didn't know what to do. I ended up doing, I don't know if you remember those, but I ended up doing an entry to employment course, which mm. is like a little thing uh, that you do before college before you—if you if you don't know what you want to do. Mm. Um, so I did that, and I experimented. I was a receptionist at a, like a car dealership. I was like... Um, i did I did a few different bits and I ended up my last placement was in the kitchen of a nursing home mm. I, and I loved it I loved that environment and I was like you know what i'll go and do I'll go and do catering at college mm-hmm. um EMA was a thing at the time you got your thirty pound a week if you went to all your classes um well if you were underprivileged and and all those sort of things um yeah. And and the course that I was at would give you fifty quid if you went on if you got accepted successfully into a course at college. Right. So I was like, boom, catering college, and I loved it. Um, I really really loved it. Bolton College. Uh, I had a tutor called Wendy Bissett who trained under like Gordon Ramsay at the Savoy, and oh, wow. and and she was brilliant. Not only a brilliant chef, but a a, a mentor. Um, you know, I'll never forget I was really depressed once I'd broken up with a girlfriend and 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 I was at college and she says, she turns around and says, you know what, there are fifty-seven different varieties of vine soup and you can't just eat the same one every day. And I was <laughs> like, you know what? That's a good way of looking at life. <laughs> um, I love that
0: she knows that number just off something. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. Well. yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, so then I went ca- I did catering. Um I will say, I love my time at college. I had a great time. I met some great friends, but mm as much as I love Wendy Bissett and everyone else in that college I don't feel like it fully prepares you for the life of a chef that's a different sure. ball game <laughs> that you know they teach you how to cook
0: yeah. but
1: going to a professional kitchen is a different ball game altogether uh, but yeah after that I was a chef for 10 years so that that's where I progressed I was a chef for 10 years uh, I worked in pubs uh, like gastropubs type thing then I worked in Italian restaurants for uh, lots of years and then from there I moved on to like the Marriott Hotel, um, Edwardian Blue, the Radisson in, in uh, near the Midlands mm. in Manchester mm. um, and then from there um, I went over to Ireland and I worked there for like a year and a half. Uh, I ran my own kitchen in a little pub there which was good and bad, for different reasons. But yeah, and then, I, but it was at that point that I was like, I'm done. 10 years, during,
0: yeah. During that, were you writing?
1: Yeah, I was definitely writing. To, towards the end of that, like, prolifically, um, mm. not saying any of it was good, but but I, when I was in Ireland, I was in a very, very, very mm. bad place in my life. And I was just working drinking, doing a lot of cocaine and writing and that's how I lived, that, mm. that, was, that was my life. I, I just, it was like a therapy thing like, and that's how that's how it's prog- progressed for me. But yeah, and then, yeah, and then from there, um, I was in Ireland, I was umming and Iron, broken relationship, living there alone, no family, no friends, just working, 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 running myself down um, and then I had to fly back to Bolton for my mum's graduation from a BA at Bolton Uni from creative writing which had been telling me throughout the degree you need to do this you need to do this you'd be so good at it blah blah blah. and i always thought you know it's too late i'm 27 Mm. i've been a chef for 10 years i can't learn new tricks i'm an old dog that kind of thing and then i sat there uh, at bolton victoria no bolton town hall sat there in the graduation hall my mum's up there, like, proudest moment of my life. And I had this, like, libel moment, like, wow, she's 49. She's up there picking up a degree. Like, what's my mm. excuse? I'm, I'm only 27. Like, what, you know, what's stopping me? And literally, I w- left there, flew back to Ireland, applied to Bolton Uni, got a response, invited to an interview, flew back for the interview, um, which went well, but they wanted, because I'm a mature student, I don't need the UCAS points and stuff. They wanted to see more work. They sure. sent me back, and it was like, I want to offer you a place. I'm probably going to offer you a place, but you need to send us more work. Because I only took poetry at the time. I didn't realize, you know, I just I want to be a writer. This is what the, I
0: write. The name of the degree was Creative it's, Practice. Is that right? No,
1: no, that, uh, that's the MA they do that's now. The it, it, is, it is creative writing, like a, creative a, writing. a Bachelor of Arts in creative writing. Um, but in that degree, you have to take script writing, fiction writing and yeah. poetry writing. So I f- they wanted to see an example of each and I'd only took poetry with me. So I came back to Ireland. My my boss had like a Windows 95 or maybe even older, <laughs> like box computer in the office that he never even used. And I like fired it up one day and I was like typing some script in there. And I I, I basically did a script about an Irish pub. So I thought, I'm in Amazing. here every day. Amazing. I yeah. see some... some you know, things like I see some things and Mm. I just wrote a script and it was more or less verbatim of my time in Ireland, working at that Mm. pub, but into an half an hour script. So, you know, you had lads doing drug deals outside, you had old lads drinking eight pints of Guinness and then getting in their Range Rovers and driving home. You had, yeah, you had everything and- um, Wow, do you still have it? I still have it somewhere, yeah. I might might actually work on that sometime. because it was, yeah, I called it like Eddie's Pub or something like really uh, inimaginative. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I typed this, this script up in this little old computer in my boss's little office um, in the pub and sent it in. And then I was offered the place. And I mm. thought, right, that was it. I handed my notice in Ireland, packed all my shit. My mum and Phil drove over in their car and helped me bring stuff back. Like, I moved mm. back from Ireland in public transport. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> it, it was Ooh. a lot. I flew back and forth two, three times. My mum and Phil came on the ferry in their car, packed that up, um, left. Uh, yeah, so, and then I moved to, to Bolton and moved back to Bolton after a year and a half away and went to Bolton Uni and that's how I've ended up in this weird and wonderful journey I'm on at the moment that was the beginning of everything
0: yeah it really was and that was such a crazy thing isn't it because that's such like a divergent path where it really could have you could have just gone no I'm too old for that I'm not doing it and been carrying on just moved to a different pub in Ireland moved to a different part of Ireland and it never never happened that's yeah that is absolutely fascinating really really interesting I really want to have a look at that script now Really
1: interesting. I'll show you for some time for sure. I've got it somewhere in in a folder somewhere. I'll find it.
0: Do you think being at uni, then meeting Ben, meeting the rest of your lecturers, while you practiced, obviously poetry is your sort of main preferred medium. Which, which of the t- which of the other two was the one that you know is, is maybe something you you'd, you'd like to move into at, at some point? That something. I mean, we're doing nonfiction now. I guess we're doing interviews. You're working as a journalist on this show, so
1: yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I never thought of myself as a journalist, but um, but I suppose that's what we're doing right here, absolutely. Um, I was always more pulled towards the fiction, because, mm. but I had better grades in script. My mm, scripts were okay. stronger than my fiction pieces, I would say. Um, I suppose in fiction, you have more room to flower it up and, mm. and put things in there that you don't need to to make it long enough, and in script and poetry you don't get afforded that luxury and i feel like that's my downfall um i liked script i liked fiction more i think purely because i was super inspired by my lecturer val um Oriordan, who, who i hope will be having on soon um mm-hmm. but i just i loved uh teaching methods i loved like, the way, you know, she taught us to build character and and place and a world and all these things. Um, I just really, really enjoyed uh, a lecture as I found them really engaging, and I found myself always wanting to write. Um, but again, with script, you know, Ed Edwards, who we had on, who is a great script writer, and he's done lots of things with home Manchester and BBC and things like this. Again, he's, he, he was a bit more erratic, so he's not everyone liked his lectures, because you could be like... I remember one nine, o- 9 o'clock lecture we had with him, the first half an hour, we were just talking about drugs. Uh, <laughs> not because to have them, but, you know, just d- different things. I don't know how we ended up with it, but half an hour the lecture had gone and we just talked mm. about different kinds of drugs and why people take them and what they do to people and all these sort of things. So it was a bit more erratic. But, um, but yeah, I, li- I like script as well. And I think script, like poetry, like I said before, you don't get afforded. You, you Everything has to be there for a reason. You need, mm. you know, Ed always said which I'm sure you probably heard this before but if you show a gun in scene three it needs to be gone mm-hmm. gone off by seas- by scene five so you need to it needs it's like poetry you, everything has to wear in its place you need to, everything needs to be worked and and really belong there and I think that's the beauty of it I would really like to write more f- more script um mm. but i I'm like stage for me i don't I'm not um I'm not a TV writer or I suppose I could be if I wanted to but i I think stage is what I think it's like the performance of it as well. You know what I mean? I've I've gone to many yeah. one woman shows that I absolutely adore. I feel like that's um, such an art in itself and so much talent has to go into that. Like for one person to do a whole hour show on stage,
0: mm-hmm. play
1: different people, play different things. Like I just, yeah. Um, and I, I think I'd definitely like to dabble into that before, uh, 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 soon at some point.
0: It is It is a fascinating thing. And I think there's a degree of ownership over that, which you lose when you move into other mediums. You need, like with film, I'm fascinated by film, um, but I know that there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of passing over the creative ownership of it. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet, which you don't with poetry and you don't with like, staging something yourself. You can, You can be there the whole way through the process.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
0: So yeah. we could. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, no, no. That was. I was just. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. I agree. And uh, and I, s- I suppose fiction is similar as well. And I have been mm. reworking my fiction project from uni recently, because um, I think that could be a really a really cool little novella that I write eventually as well. So yeah, there's plenty of things to. Uh, I feel like I've got my fingers in too many pies at the minute, but, um, but yeah, there's more pies coming for sure
0: yeah well <laughs> this is it I think it it's I think the reason part of the reason why we started doing this together is that we have a very similar outlook and approach to creativity um but unfortunately it does mean that we're very very busy a lot of the time so if we just run through the projects a that we're doing together so this podcast yes the doors open the kick um and then you co-run Nata with Stuart and you're part of Prince poet with your partner now yeah and in amongst all of that you actually have to produce stuff (laughs) to sell at these various events and stuff um so i want to talk about that whether it feels overwhelming at all and how you would talk to other people about starting up creative projects um because a lot of the time that's the sort of questions people ask me like how do you get started on this sort of stuff and then i want to talk about Nata, and then i want to talk a little bit about sandeens and then i'm gonna let you go So, yeah, first of all, do you feel intimidated by the amount that you've got on?
1: Um, You know, this is a great, great question. Like, I know from the outside, I know we've discussed this privately as well before. And I think from the outside, if someone sees like, I was changing my Instagram bio the other day and I was like, one (laughs) half of this and this and a quarter of this. And I was like, yeah, there's a lot there. But I feel like, as I said to you before, and as I said to a lot of people, creatives... It's really difficult for us to make a living from our art, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever that might be. Like Nata, for example, I never started Nata to make any money of it. Never. Yeah. It, that was not That was not what I wanted. It's never been a monetary thing. It's never been something I want to monetize and I want to charge for tickets, you know. After we did the first snatter at the cafe and we packed it up, like 40 people in there. As you know, three guys is not that big. Uh, that's why we do tickets even though they're free. Um, but we packed. We packed the cafe out after the first one, which I'm sure you attended. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you did the. You had the open mic night, with the on the door one. Um, so you saw how busy it is. My boss came straight to me after it, after he'd seen that we made like 250 quid in the till <laughs> over the day's takings already. It was buzzing. It was like you should charge even two pound a ticket. People will pay for it. Yeah. And straight away, I was like, no, I. D- I just don't want to do that. It's not, I don't care about two people. And he meant, he
0: meant for you to keep the Yeah, yeah, as well. He didn't want, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, 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 Tiago,
1: yeah. you know, um, has been very supportive of this venture. He's never asked me for any money. He's always offered, yeah. uh, and he has usually has to pay one or two staff to work the night as well. And he does that out of his own pocket, which is unbelievable. i yeah. um, very lucky in that sense because a lot of venues and people just can't or won't do that. So that's great. Um, but yeah, it's never been about that with Nata for me. All I wanted Nata to be was, I wanted to create a community, bring people together. Um, I saw a gap for a night like this in Bolton. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the Socialist Club does do things with Life From Worktown and stuff, which is brilliant. But yeah, I, I saw a gap, I wanted to fill that gap, but it wasn't. it's never been about money. I never thought, okay, eventually I'll make money with this, never. Um, print a Poet, no, yeah, So so, is it too much i don't want to i don't want to digress too much i don't feel like it's too much i feel like i'm doing all these things because i want to create opportunities for people like mm-hmm. me where we can earn money from it where we can like sell our art and be paid for it like as as performers as poets a lot of the time we're travelling we're paying for mm-hmm. that ourselves and then we get into a place we've got 5 minutes to get people's attention and and tell them what we're about and give them our work but very very rarely we're not paid for that are we we just do that off our own back uh out of our own pocket and things and i suppose all these things like trying the podcast um this kick well the kick is not for money at all either but obviously Mm. eventually we hope to make money to put back into the community and so there's that but I don't feel like it's too much. I feel like I'm doing it to create opportunities for me and for those around me, for my peers, for other artists. Um and and this is what you have to do. We're not gonna sell we're not gonna sell we're not gonna make millions from selling our poetry collections. <laughs> we know that, you know, we're very grateful for our publisher to putting them out there. And but that's not gonna make our lives, isn't it? That's not gonna pay our rents, so it's not gonna put put food on our tables. So what else can you do, right? Well, my girlfriend's an artist. I'm a poet. Can we combine them? Yeah, we can. We can make t-shirts. We can make prints. Mm-hmm. So we do that, and we sell those at different events and make a little bit of money from it. It's not. It doesn't pay our rent, but that added up to this, added up to that. It's all about opportunities. It's it's how we've got to live our lives. If if we're gonna choose this path of writer, creative, you know, it's it's the way to go. I d- yeah. Sometimes absolutely. I feel like I'm too busy, but. I love it at the same time and it, I don't feel overwhelmed by it. I feel excited because we get yeah. to have chats with people like Anthony Schmerick, with people like Henry Normal. Then we get to do a kick and give back to the community that's welcomed us both as outsiders. And it's all great things, I think. It's all exciting things. I'm, I'm excited for where life is going to go. And I'd rather mm. be busy than just be like, even with work, you know, I'd rather a day where we do serve 100 people than we're yeah. just waiting for yeah. customers to come in. And that's with life.
0: I completely agree with you. I want to be busy all the time. And it's funny because it's not, like you say, a capitalist thing. It's not about being busy to make the the most money. It's about being busy to make yourself feel like you're doing something. And something that other people can get on board with. And will have a positive sort of end goal for as many different people as possible. Yeah, Absolutely. Like I
1: don't want to be rich. I just want to be able to not worry about my rent uh, and, yeah. my, and, and my weekly shop and things like that and you know we're both working class people we both have our struggles growing up and coming up in the yeah. world being independent and all these things and I think this is just a part of that it's like right how can we better our lives you know it's not about like making the most money it's uh, it's really about making the most art and 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 getting that recognized and sharing that with people
0: that's a look that's a beautiful way to move on to the next question i think um so being busy gives you opportunities so here she is sardines i've got a copy sat on my desk and like i said i've been rereading it um do you want to talk about the sort of journey in which that came to to be a thing that i can have right here next to me
1: yeah absolutely um sardines started off really as my creative project at uni my final year you have to drop but uh, you have to drop two of your creative modules, pick one, which, of course, was poetry for me. And you have to produce a short collection of 15 poems, mm. which is short right now. Yeah. But when you when you're a student and you get told to produce 15 poems, it seems like a whole book. Um, but yeah, so I had to work on that. And that was like my dissertation, if you will, my creative project. And a lot of the poems in there were born that way. Um, and then when I finished uni, I was just kind of a standstill. I had this portfolio, I had these fifteen poems. They, I was told, they were all quite strong. You know, mm-hmm. actually, the piece of feedback that I st- sticks in my mind from that final project was that this is impressive. Would be impressive at a postgraduate level. Never mind mm. that at an undergraduate level and I got the highest grade I think the university has ever handed out um, on a creative project. And I'm I'm not saying this to blow my own trumpet or anything like that, but it's just, for me it's a proud moment, like, and this isn't my home language, it's not my mother tongue, you know, it's not. And then after all these years I'm here and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really proud moment for me getting that 92, it's just like unbelievable. Um, I had like random lecturers messaging me going like we've read this and <laughs> it's you know like and people that they even teach me but I guess Ben was that excited about it that he must have shared it around the department or whatever but yeah I had people that never taught me messaging, emailing me like oh Incredible. my god that you know that's the highest grade I've ever seen go out it looks so da um yeah um I lost my train of thought
0: so where do we go with it? So we oh, have yes. got the 15 so, poems.
1: So we've got the 15 poems. I finished uni, graduated, and I'm like, oh, what now? <laughs> mm. <laughs> because when <laughs> you're at uni, it's great because you've been given opportunities and pushed in different little ways. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, immensely yeah. grateful for Ben, who sent me the murky, uh, the murky, application you know Mm -hmm. he said you absolutely should go for that and without him I never would have applied for that like I just Mm. just wouldn't have um so yeah all these opportunities and then you finish and you're like oh shit what now uh so the first thing I did is okay okay open mics let's go out into open mics and put myself out there through Mm. that I met our publisher Rebecca Kenny of Benke Publishing um and mm, we just met briefly at different nights, didn't really talk that much. And you know, I, I was new to the scene, so was she, we didn't know everybody. Um, and then I remember I went to one gig in Lee at Micah the Mill with uh, Carla Meller and uh, who was actually the Huddersfield Slam champion, amazing, uh, and Tom Stocks. Um, and again, met Rebecca Kenny there again for the like third or fourth time, saw that she'd randomly started this publish- <laughs> publishing company. Um, and after, for my performance, she was like, can you please send us something for our chapbook submissions? So she invited me to submit. I'd, I'd seen the thing, I was like, i in an iron, is it good enough for publication? Blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, I ended up working on it, uh, writing a few more poems, so 15 poems isn't a lot really in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Sent an application to a, a submission, sorry. And yeah, she accepted it. It was actually on the very first Natter that f- that night, she messaged me, she was like, absolutely love it. I've read it three times, I wanna publish it. Can you develop it into a collection? And I was like, oh mm. my God, a first full collection, yeah. Um, I remember being so buzzed when I got home from Natter and obviously Natter was buzzing enough and then I got that, I was like, ah. Yeah, um, what a day. What a, what a day, you know, what is my <laughs> life. Um, And so I set about doing that. I set about trying to do a full collection with what I had. um, But in the end, it didn't work out. I wasn't happy with it. It was about a week before publication. I'd already had the chat with Sam about doing my uh, cover art and everything. um, And I just wasn't happy. I I was stressed. I was really stressed. I wasn't excited about putting the book out. I wasn't happy with the state of it. Not Mm. because I didn't believe in the work, uh, but as I said to to probably you and a few people before, it just felt like two different books Mm-hmm. Being pushed together for the sake of publication um and I just wasn't happy with that and i I reached out very honestly and said to Rebecca, I want to just do a chat book if that's still on the table. you know I'm not happy with releasing this as one project. I feel like it's two projects I need and bearing in mind, fifteen of those poems have been written for the last three to four years. Mm. And then you, I'm just writing things now, they need, I am i am a big redrafter, I'm a big editor, I can't mm-hmm. just write and put stuff together and lash the book out, like that's not me. Um, but yeah, very, very lucky for me, very, very luckily for me, um, there's another one, sorry. Yeah, very luckily for me, Rebecca was very, very kind and said, if that's how you feel, I want you to be happy. Uh, I want you to be happy with the work that you're putting out. And absolutely, yeah. if you want to do a chat book, let's do a chat book. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to her for that. I'll never forget that because she trusted my vision wholeheartedly. I don't know that if I'd gone with the with the, with the big five, uh, as some people call it, like I, I, n- I wouldn't have had that creative freedom to do that. You know no. what I mean? I just wouldn't have. Um, and I'm, I'm very aware of that. So, again, Key incredibly uh, grateful and thankful for them for that reason. And, yeah, so then so then I shortened it down. I got rid of everything that I think has been rushed or needs work or... So,
0: just to stop you and ask you, the fir- yeah. the, the first half, the bit that remains the chat box, is very clearly sort of rooted in this central metaphor of the idea of the pack of sardines, of family, of... Um, moving and dislocation and contrasts. Um what was I suppose it's a bit of a tease of whatever comes next. What what was the second half? What was the cut stuff about?
1: The cut stuff is dealing with things like gender identity a lot more. Um mm. as I've discussed with you before, you know, I'm I identify as gender neutral gender fluid Mm -hmm. gender non-conforming if you will uh there's i'm still learning you know that's Mm. another reason why i didn't want to put that work out there yet because i'm still interrogating myself i'm still interrogating the world around me i'm still learning um what what all this means um all i know is that i don't feel one gender or the other or sometimes Mm. i'll have a day where i do feel one very much so or the other very much so and it's You know, that's all I know at the moment. That's that's all I'm absolutely sure of is that, is that, is of that Mm. that very Mm. thing that I just said there. So I'm still learning, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm equipped enough to put out a full book about what that means for me, who I am in that sense, you know, that's a work in progress. If I do put that out someday, then it'll be be a while away yet, because I'm still learning, I'm still questioning myself, Mm. questioning the world around me, and learning from different communities, different people. You know, I still don't know, like I said to you before, I go through stages where I'd like top surgery, I go through stages where I'm not sure whether that's Mm. the thing for me, you know, uh, yeah, I'm still I'm still confused and I'm still learning and that's what those poems are starting to question, starting to deal with. And the dish didn't feel like they belonged in sardines, like you said before. It's got a w- it's got a very clear lace through it. It's f- family is at the epicenter. It's in the middle. It's got the f- family for my parents and my gra- maternal grandparents. Um, they're translated into Portuguese. Then you've got the first part, which is like the migration journey. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, there's, there's snippets of that gender identity thing at the end. I've got a poem called Grey Area in there, which is like, I'm not quite this, I'm not quite that, I'm not quite the other. It's like, it's me beginning to realize, um, you know, uh, but that's not, uh, not just about gender as well. It's like, it starts off, not quite Portuguese, cause I don't like sardines, you know, not yeah. quite British, not quite this. So that there's little snippets of there there's also one called um I think it's the first poem in the end section called becoming yeah. so that 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 deals a little bit at the end I think I became uh, I became a fluid thing so again there's little snippets of that but but I just wanted that to be the end point as where I'm up to in my life so I've started migrating I've got my family at the top and then I go back down and it's like where I'm where I'm at now but yeah I didn't want felt like two books for that reason to to, to make
0: a statement and a permanent statement without yeah necessarily having the language to to do so yeah yeah interesting that you used the word um fluidity there and obviously there is that link to that sort of sea and that again coming back to that idea of the metaphor that runs throughout do you think that sardines is something that is gonna continue on to be something that is like an iconic iconoclastic thing that you'll return to throughout your writing or do you think that that era that period is is sort of boxed off with this
1: um i think it's probably stops here uh, only because uh, the connection with sardines w- although you can connect it like you just said to you know water ocean all these things fluidity that that wasn't the connection for me in the, in this particular mm. book that came from my grandparents growing mm. up with my grandparents sardines being big in our diet going down to the dock really early with my granddad to pick up massive buckets of sardines then coming back and being in the kitchen when my my grandma is gutting them and grilling them for lunch and that's where that's where the connection came from and then that that to me resonated with family so the, the tin the family sardines it's it's the connection for me is there with with family. And I'm not saying I'll stop writing about family, but mm. I think that's where it ends there and it'll just probably be its own thing and stay there. I don't think I'll, I'll I'll write much more about them.
0: Amazing. Good. Right, so I think we're heading, we've hit the hour mark, I think we're heading yep. up to our conclusion. So um, for those that aren't aware, it's in the title of the podcast, we always ask our guest each week if there was one thing in your... Life slash career that you could go back, scribble over, redraft, redo. What would it be?
1: It's such a big question, isn't it? Uh, I love I love listening to different people's answer to this. I think mine remains uh, remains the same uh, as I thought about it throughout uh, while we've been filming these episodes, and it is that I just wish I'd I wish I hadn't wasted so much time. Being unhappy in a career and telling myself that I'm too old a dog to learn new tricks, um, so I wish that I would have maybe s- started my writing journey a bit earlier than I had. That's that's because yeah, I think that's my greatest regret is wasting so much time. I mean, I knew at least five years into that ten decade long career that I wasn't happy and I want I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And you just waste five years you're never gonna get them back what could i have achieved in five years but then there is the flip side is like my journey be the same would i have ended up in ireland would i have have gone to you you know it's you just don't know but yeah that i think Mm. that's got to be mine i think that's my biggest regret
0: that's um yeah and and taking ownership over that and i think in in many ways perhaps you're making up for it now with all the projects
1: (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, i'm cramming everything in my in my (laughs) 30s um yeah yeah,
0: it is yeah. funny that as I as I sort of crawl towards my thirties, um, you do you do change your perspective on age a, a lot, I think uh, at this sort of part in uh, time in your life because like especially with the people that we know, I guess and the success that we're seeing come, I was going to say later in life, but it's not, is it? It's crazy that the, the way sort of Western society pictures youth as something that only happens to you when you're seventeen to like twenty five when it's not at all, especially with fucking the retirement age being put back <laughs> and the state of things. Like, you've got such a long period of of time where you're, you know, you're, you're completely mobile, your, your brain is, is re- roaring and, if anything, working too hard. And this idea of youth being something that only happens to you once is, is completely nonsense, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I say this all the time to anyone who will listen, but, like, It seems like when it comes to like literary prizes and opportunities, things like that, it seems like your life stops at thirty. Like I've come across Mm. so many things that were like, Oh, up until you're thirty, you can apply up until you're thirty. And it's like, (laughs) Why what happens when you're thirty? you know, we're still this is probably when we're at our best. Like we're Mm, in the prime of life. Like you say, your brain's working great, you're mobile, you've got maturity you've got mm-hmm. you know everything's on your side but age apparently <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> yeah it's a funny one i've noticed that a lot now that i've i'm going on to my 32nd year ne- next week um or in two weeks time um but yeah i uh, yeah i've been noticing that a lot recently like the murky books for instance i, mm. I could only apply that last year because it's up until you're 30 mm. so like mm-hmm. that was the only time i could apply you know um and there's, there's plenty like that outside out there yeah
0: which I suppose brings us on to um, wrapping up and yep. to doing our little plugs for what our our Patreon. So um, if you've enjoyed the the chat, um, there's plenty more where this came from. Brogan that Carlin's episode is out now, as is my episode. Um, and if you've enjoyed them, please consider going into to supporting us um, on Patreon.com. Redraft Podcast. Um, support in for three, five, or eight pounds a month gets you various. Benefits and um, exciting uh, opportunities, including but not limited to throughout the tiers. So um, writers groups, um, where we're going to be, me and Ramina are going to be in there on Instagram group chat, passing forward, writing prompts, getting ideas back and forth um, and forming a little community over there um, at the £5 tier. We've got lots of different benefits, including but not limited to
1: pre sale to live events, which we'll be organising lots of in the summertime. Also, you get to interact with our guests, so you can send us ask questions for us to ask them um, via our Gmail, and we'll, we'll ask them those questions live on the interview. And then we've got the typewriter tier. So as well as everything else me and Will just mentioned, you will also get one free art print from Print A Poet, uh, of course. You'll also get to commission your own poem from one of us uh, one time, once a year, which, you know, is unreal. Um, and you can request feedback on one single piece of work from us as well.
0: Yeah, and that's once per month. So keep us busy, guys. As we said, we like being busy And please do consider coming over and joining over there. Um, And yeah, I think that about wraps us up.
1: That is everything from us, yeah. Uh,
0: We'll be here every week, every Monday, um, with a new piece of podcasting gold to to start your week off right, talking about writing with people from various different parts of the scene, not just poets, scriptwriters, lecturers, non-fiction, journalists, comedians, musicians, everything you can think of. Um, If there's anyone that you would particularly like to see as a guest, um, please let us know and we'll do our best to make that happen. Please go and give us a follow over on Instagram and Twitter at Redraft Podcast. And that about wraps us up. Give us a five stars on Apple Podcasts or your podcasting platform of choice.
1: Yes, and tell all your friends about us and we'll see you here next week.
0: Bye. 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 Lovely.